Peter wrote his second epistle to warn scattered and suffering saints about false teachers, particularly antinomian Gnostics who denied biblical orthodoxy. After exhorting believers about the necessity of growing in godliness to prevent themselves from falling victim to false teachers, Peter focuses his reader's attention upon the false teachers themselves. Peter began by laying out five critical warnings about false teachers in 2 Peter 2, 1-3. False teachers are a continuous threat, promote destructive heresies and alluring immorality, have impure motives, and are doomed to judgment. Regarding their judgment, Peter used the judgment of the fallen angels who cohabitated with women, the ungodly generation of Noah's era, and the ungodly of Sodom and Gomorrah, to demonstrate that the judgment of false teachers is indeed certain, as seen in 2 Peter 2, 4-10a. Now, in the first part of verse 10, Peter gave two reasons for the certainty of judgment upon false teachers. Namely, they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, and they despise authority. These two reasons for judgment against false teachers function as the transition to now to Peter's description of false teachers in 2 Peter 2, 10b-22. And it should be underscored that Peter's description in verses 10-22 through 22 parallels his warnings in verses 1-3. through 3. And the purpose of the parallel is to focus us on the false teacher's wickedness. And in doing so, Peter uses more expressive and detailed terms to emphasize their wickedness. And he, and he gives us here a damnable description of false teachers. Now, Peter begins by showing us that false teachers are arrogant. False teachers are arrogant. Then, false teachers are animalistic. They're animalistic. Third, false teachers are atrocious. False teachers are atrocious. Fourth, false teachers are adulterous. False teachers are adulterous. Five, false teachers are apostate. They are apostate. Number six, false teachers are arid. They're arid. And then number seven, we'll see that false teachers are accursed. They are accursed. So let's begin in verse 10b through 11 of Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10b to 11. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Peter describes the damnable description of false teachers. He describes them here as arrogant. Now their arrogance emanates in two terms, daring and self-willed. Daring refers to someone who is audacious or presumptuous. As such, they are recklessly bold. They hold in contempt anything associated with law, religion, or decorum. The term self-willed indicates that these false teachers are egocentric, only concerned with their own interest. They stubbornly assert their rights without any consideration of the rights, the feelings, or interest of others. The term self-willed also denotes an attitude of shamelessness. Now, being self-willed is an attitude that is not to be evident in elders. Titus 1.7 For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self 
willed. Now, false teachers are so arrogant that they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. The verb tremble denotes the act of being fearful or afraid. The verb revile translates the Greek verb blasphemio. It means to speak irreverently in a manner that blasphemes or hurts the reputation of someone or something. And the plural form of the Greek term doxa, typically translated as glory, here refers to angelic majesties. These false teachers arrogantly slander angels. Now, it's likely that the false teachers mock the idea that their immorality made them easy prey to demonic forces. But in doing so, they demonstrated the truthfulness of the old adage, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Now, notice Peter says here that the holy angels were greater in might and power than humanity, especially false teachers. The word might refers to mental and physical strength. Power denotes authority. Hence, compared to humanity, angels are mentally and physically superior. And as such, they have greater authority than humanity. Nevertheless, the holy angels do not bring a reviling judgment against fallen angels. Now, Peter's statement here references 1 Enoch 9, which records the holy angels' response to the wickedness and lawlessness created by the fallen angels cohabitating with human women. Instead of intervening or rebuking the fallen angels, the angels took, the holy angels took the issue to Yahweh. First Enoch 9, 4 to 11 says, And they said to the Lord of the ages, Lord of lords, God of gods, King of kings, and the God of the ages, the throne of thy glory standeth unto all the generations of the ages, and thy name holy and glorious and blessed unto all the ages. Thou seest what Azazel hath done, who hath taught all unrighteousness on earth, and they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth, and have slept with the women, and have defiled themselves, and revealed to them all kinds of sins. And thou dost not say to us what we are to do to them in regard to these. Now Jude provides a similar example from the assumption of Moses when he states, quote, in Jude 9, but Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. See, Peter states that the holy angels did not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. The Greek term translated as reviling is blasphemos. Peter deliberately chose this term to contrast the holy angels to the false teachers. If beings greater in strength and authority than false teachers will not pass judgment upon fallen angels or even blaspheme them, then why do false teachers think they can slander such beings? Simply stated, false teachers are arrogant and as such lack common sense. Believing themselves to be superior to angels, they do not hesitate to slander beings that are more powerful and authority and authoritative, rather, than themselves. False teachers are arrogant. Now, the second damnable description of false teachers is that they are animalistic. They are animalistic. Verse 12, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. 
Not only are false teachers arrogant, but Peter also describes them as animalistic. He states that they are reviling where they have no knowledge. That term reviling, again, is blasphemio. The verbal phrase, they have no knowledge, agnoeo, indicates that false teachers slander against fallen angels is not based upon facts or knowledge. Instead, they speak out of ignorance. Thomas Reiner states that these false teachers displayed their foolishness in criticizing what they did not comprehend. And because of their arrogance, false teachers speak out of turn and without facts. In this manner, Peter compares them to unreasoning animals. Now, the term unreasoning here means lacking rationale. See, animals are creatures of instinct. They cannot rationalize or reason as people do. Instead, they operate on desires and feelings. See, false teachers are like animals because they do not behave rationally. Instead, their decisions are based on emotion. And Scripture warns that decisions based on emotions or desires or feelings are dangerous, yet even deadly, because the heart, the source of emotion, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Jeremiah 17.9 Now Peter notes here that these animals are to be captured and killed. Peter's reference here is to the role of animals in a post-Diluvian or post-flood world. In Genesis 9.3, God stated, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Peter's point is that animals have a divinely appointed end. And as such, so do the false teachers. Again, Jude makes the same point about false teachers in Jude 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Like animals that are destined to destruction, so false teachers will be destroyed. Peter employs a bit of wordplay here. Destruction, phthora, refers to the process of decay. Indeed, when animals die, their body decays and wastes away. The verb be destroyed, phthero, means to punish or bring to a worse state. Though animals die and decay, false teachers will die, but then go on to a worse state, eternal torment in the lake of fire. Peter describes false teachers as arrogant and animalistic. But his damnable description goes further. Verse 13. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Peter describes false teachers as not only arrogant and animalistic, but also atrocious. Their atrociousness is seen in the phrase, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. The term revel, trufe, relates to self-indulgences which destroy the integrity of the body and mind. The phrase in the daytime indicates that such self-indulgence would typically be practiced at night. And Paul presents an interesting perspective on this revelry in Romans 13.13. 13. He says, Let us behave properly as in the day, 
not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Now, evil is typically practiced under the cloak of darkness, 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But false teachers engage in carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and sensuality, not only at night, but in the daytime as well. And to behave in such a way indicates that they have no shame. Isaiah warned Israel of such behavior in Isaiah 5.11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening, that wine may inflame them. People who behave in such a manner are stains and blemishes. Stains, spilas, refers to a soiled or discolored spot on a cloth. Here Peter uses the term in the sense of immorality. Blemishes are flaws that spoil something's appearance. In this context, it refers to something disgraceful. The atrociousness of false teachers is underscored by the fact then that they are immoral and disgraceful. Later in his epistle, Peter exhorts us to be the opposite. In 2 Peter 3.14, we are to be spotless and blameless. And in the Greek, spotless and blameless translate the negated form of stains and blemishes. Aspalos and amaetas. Now, Peter also warns believers that false teachers are in their midst. He stated that they are reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Now the word deceptions denotes sinful pleasures and refers back to the term revel, which is carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and sensuality. The verb carouse here, though, is not the normal word for carousing. Here carouse, sinu Akamai refers to feasting or eating with others. This carousing or eating is with believers. And it must be underscored that contextually the term carouse here does not carry a negative connotation. Now, we need to ask what then is meant by carousing with you. And Jude presents or provides a perspective. In Jude 12, he states, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. The term hidden reefs, spilades, is a cognate term of stains, spilas. The phrase when they feast in Jude 12 is the same as, or the same term, sinuakamai, translated as carouse in 2 Peter 2.13. The occasion of this feasting or carousing is the love feast. Now, what is the love feast? Well, according to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, a love feast was a meal which had the double purpose of satisfying hunger and thirst and giving expression to the sense of Christian brotherhood. At the end of this feast, bread and wine were taken according to the Lord's command, and after thanksgiving to God were eaten and drunk in remembrance of Christ, and as a special means of communion with the Lord himself, through him with one another. What this tells us then is these false teachers were apparently in the church, 
and enjoying church meals, culminating in the Lord's Supper. While they were fellowshipping with believers and partaking of the Lord's Supper, these false teachers were engaged in sinful pleasures behind the scenes. Perhaps this provides the background behind the exhortation to distinguish between church meals and partaking of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 20-22. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. When one is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? See, because of their atrociousness, Peter states that the false teachers are suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. In other words, they're going to be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. False teachers will not enjoy the spoils of their evil. Instead, they will, as Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Ultimately, God will pay false teachers the wage they deserve for their atrociousness. So Peter describes false teachers as arrogant, animalistic, and atrocious. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. 2 Peter 2, 14. Again, as we have seen, the damnable description of false teachers is that they're arrogant, animalistic, atrocious, and now adulterous. They have eyes full of adultery. The term adultery here, moikalis, is feminine and denotes an adulteress. Hence, according to William Arndt, the text can be translated this way. Eyes that are full of desire for an adulteress, that is, they always are looking for a woman with whom to commit adultery. In other words, false teachers lust after every woman they see as a potential sexual partner. In their view, a woman is nothing more than a thing to be used to fill their desires. And the phrase, never cease from sin, connects back to the eyes of the false teachers. That is, their eyes never cease from sin. It expands the lust of the eyes beyond just women to lusting after anything sinful or transgressing God's law. Now, it was not enough for these false teachers to engage in their own sexual promiscuity, but they were enticing unstable souls to do the same. The verb enticing is a hunting or fishing term, meaning to set a trap or bait a hook. Contextually, it means to lure or seduce someone into sin. Unstable refers to someone or something which lacks stability or firmness. In this case, unstable refers to immature believers who lack doctrinal stability. As such, they are easy prey for false teachers who entice them to engage in promiscuous and sensual behaviors that are contrary to Scripture without any fear of judgment. The phrase, having a heart trained in greed, implies that these false teachers were experts in greed. The word trained there translates the Greek verb gajimnasmenein, from which the English term gymnasium comes. It conveys the idea of exercising. Greed, or greediness, is an excessive and immoderate desire to acquire more of something. Hence, these false teachers exercise their heart in excessive and immoderate desires. 
the use of the term greed in connection with adultery insinuates that their excessive and immoderate desires are not merely for material objects, but promiscuity and sensuality. And as such, Peter states that false teachers are accursed children, or children of the curse. To be accursed, katara, is to be liable to the penalties contained in a curse. Specifically, Paul, Peter rather has in mind God's curse of death that he placed upon false teachers in Deuteronomy 13.5. That prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. While physical death was in view, it pointed forward to a future judgment that results in a second death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. False teachers. They have this damnable description of false teachers says that they are not only described as arrogant, animalistic, atrocious, and adulterous, but they are also apostate. Verses 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Again, false teachers are not only described as arrogant, animalistic, atrocious, adulterous, but also apostate. Apostasy is turning against God by abandoning and repudiating biblical orthodoxy. The difference between heresy and apostasy is that the former can be recanted, whereas the latter is permanent. In fact, Peter serves an example of someone who embraced heresy, i.e. his threefold denial of Christ, and later repented and recanted. But to the issue of apostasy, Paul provides an overview of the apostate in Hebrews 6, 4-6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. First, note this. The apostate had once been enlightened. They were baptized and gave testimony of their conversion. Second, the apostate had once tasted of the heavenly gift. They were welcomed into the local church, enjoyed fellowship, and were ministered to through the church's teaching ministry. Third, the apostate had once been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They shared in the Holy Spirit's pre-salvation ministry, i.e. conviction and confession, but not the Spirit's ongoing ministry of baptism and indwelling. Fourth, the apostate had once tasted the good word of God. They are hearers of the word, but not doers. They produce no fruit. Fifth, the apostate had once tasted the power of the age to come. That is, they served the Lord all while practicing their lawlessness. Sixth, the apostate has fallen away. They willfully turn away from God's revealed truth and embrace the godlessness of the age. And for those who fall away or apostatize, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Truthfully, they were never saved, and it is now impossible for them to ever be saved. Now Peter states that the false teachers are known for what? Forsaking the right way. 
Forsaking means to abandon or leave behind. The term right denotes that which is the correct manner of life. And the way refers to the means of salvation through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Peter previously spoke of the way of truth, back in 2 Peter 2, 2, which was an allusion to the gospel. False teachers, then, abandon the correct manner of life, a life that embraces and obeys the gospel, the way of truth. Thus, they apostatized. Having abandoned the way of truth, false teachers have gone astray. Have gone astray means to be misled from the proper belief for truth. The aorist tense of gone astray indicates that this occurred before the actual forsaking. What this shows is that apostasy is a process. Before someone completely abandons biblical orthodoxy, they must first be misled. Thus apostates use false teaching to mislead unsuspecting individuals to reproduce other apostates. And having abandoned the way of truth, false teachers chose to follow the way of Balaam. Now, Balaam is the central figure in Numbers 22 to 24. Balaam, the son of Beor, was a prophet from Mesopotamia. Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. And Yahweh warned Balaam not to go to Moab. Initially, Balaam refused, claiming that, as it says in Numbers 22 18, he could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord my God. After being offered money by the king, however, Balaam implored Yahweh to let him go to Moab. God's anger was kindled against Balaam, but he allowed him to go with the provision that Balaam could only speak what God told him. As Balaam journeyed to Moab, Yahweh placed an angel with a sword in his path to kill Balaam. Balaam could not see the angel, but the donkey he was riding on could see the angel. And when the donkey refused to move, Balaam beat that poor donkey, at which point God enabled the donkey to speak with a human voice and complain about Balaam's cruelty. Yahweh opened Balaam's eyes, enabling him to see the angel. Immediately he fell on his face and acknowledged his sin. When Balak demanded curses against Israel, Balaam could only speak blessings. And unable to pronounce curses, Balaam provided Balak with the means of turning Israel against Yahweh. His advice involved engaging the men of Israel in sexual debauchery with Moabite temple prostitutes. Later, when Israel invaded Midian, Balaam was killed. You see, Balaam is a perfect example of the false teachers. First, Balaam, like the false teachers, was greedy. Jude states that Balaam would do anything for money in Jude 11. Peter stated that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. And second, Balaam, like the false teachers, encouraged people to engage in immorality. Peter focuses on this event of the talking donkey, which provided or prevented Balaam's death and rebuked him. His point is that a mute donkey could perceive spiritual realities instead of the supposed prophet of God. Regardless of claiming to be from God, false teachers are as blind as Balaam to spiritual truth. And sadly for Balaam, he did not heed the donkey's rebuke and later died unceremoniously. And false teachers face a similar fate as well for their apostasy. So far we have seen this damnable description of false teachers. 
They are arrogant, animalistic, atrocious, adulterous, apostate. And now in verses 17 and 19, arid. Arid. A-R-I-D. Verse 17 and 19. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Now, here, Peter takes it a step further and refers to false teachers, describes them as arid. Arid refers to that which is without moisture or barren. He states that false teachers are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. The phrase springs without water is similar to Jude's clouds without rain description in Jude 12. A spring of water is a relief to those traveling through the desert. However, a dry spring leaves travelers unsatisfied, thirsty, and parched. Mist driven by the storm picture a storm that promises rain but only delivers a mist which still leaves the ground parched. And false teachers are like dry springs and mist. They are arid or barren. They leave their followers spiritually unsatisfied, thirsty, and parched. These two examples are allusions to Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Israel of old abandoned Yahweh, the fountain of living water, for false prophets who were broken cisterns that held no water. Christ revealed that he is the water of life, John 4.10 and 13-14. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Nevertheless, false teachers who are spiritually arid present themselves as an alternative source of living water. As well, the Old Testament uses, the water, uses water as a picture of sound teaching that sustains one's spiritual life. Proverbs 10, 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 13, 14, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 14, 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. False teachers have no water or sound teaching by which to support spiritual life. And the black darkness has been reserved for false teachers. The term darkness, zophos, also used in 2 Peter 2.4, denotes a condition of despair or gloom. Black, skotas, refers to eternal misery and damnation. Of interest, this Greek term skotas, translated here as black, is translated as darkness in Matthew as a reference to the lake of fire. Matthew 8.12, But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, skotas. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty two thirteen. 13. 
Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty five thirty. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus outer darkness in Matthew could be translated as outer black. Again, it's a reference for the lake of fire. And the term reserved in 2 Peter 2.17 means to keep imprisoned. That is, God has sentenced these false teachers to hell where they are imprisoned, awaiting the eternal gloom, misery, and damnation of the lake of fire. Now notice that the goal of false teachers is to entice those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Those who barely escape are new believers. Those who live in error are unbelievers. And the verb entice is a hunting or fishing term meaning to set a trap or bait a hook. Contextually, it means to lure or seduce someone into sin. And false teachers use three tools to entice or seduce new believers into sin. First, they use arrogant words of vanity. We've already seen that they're arrogant. Second, they use fleshly desires and sensuality. Again, we've seen they're adulterous. Charles Big states this, Grandiose sophistry is the hook. Filthy lust is the bait with which these men catch those whom the Lord had delivered or was delivering. And third, they promise them freedom from moral restraints and future judgments. Ironically, those who promise freedom, Peter says, are themselves slaves of corruption. Slaves, doulos, refers to those who are controlled by another. And Peter uses the Jewish idea of corruption, which refers to moral perversion and depravity. Hence, these false teachers are mastered or controlled by moral depravity. And regarding this third tool, that is, the promise of freedom, Peter provides a proverb common in Christian writings of the era derived from the slave trade. And that is this, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Christ alluded to this proverb in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. As well, Paul alluded to this proverb in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey? In other words, when someone who can not overcome a particular sin is in reality a slave to that sin. False teachers are arrogant, animalistic, atrocious, adulterous, apostate, and arid. And now we get the final description, the final damnable description of false teachers in verses 20 to 22. And that is false teachers are accursed. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Again, Peter's final damnable description 
is that they are accursed. Notice that false teachers have escaped the defilements of the world. In 2 Peter 1.4, the term escaped was used for conversion. It is used in the same manner here. Conversion came by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Knowledge, epigenosis, as understood in 2 Peter 1.2, refers to understanding the gospel so clearly and distinctly that it informs and influences one's life resulting in a conversion. As well, Peter again employs the Granville Sharp rule, indicating that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior. See, the false teachers here appear to have been converted, but they were again entangled in them and are overcome. Entangled means to become intertwined with something. Overcome is being overtaken or defeated by a superior force. The point is that while appearing to be saved, these false teachers were again intertwined with the world's defilements and overtaken by them. Though they initially confessed the gospel and embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, they now repudiated and rejected both. To this fact, Peter states that their last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter's employing Christ's own words from Matthew 12, 45. The last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Their first state refers to the lives that they led before their supposed conversion. Before Christ, they enjoyed the defilements of the world in ignorance. Their last state points to their rejection of the gospel in Christ. The last state is worse or more grievous because they would never again have the opportunity to experience salvation. As Paul stated in Hebrews 6, 6, because they have apostatized, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. By joining the present tense infinitive, renew, and the term again, it denotes the idea of restoring someone to a previous condition. It is impossible to restore these individuals to the previous condition, and that condition was conversion. And because they can no longer be saved, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. The way of righteousness is the life of morality that God demands. Proverbs 8.20, I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. Proverbs 12.28, in the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 16.31, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. And even John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness. Matthew 21.32. Peter refers to the way of righteousness as the holy commandment. The holy commandment is that command to repent and believe in the gospel, as demonstrated in Mark 1.15. Repentance and faith is the path to a life of morality. Sadly, these individuals turned away from the holy commandment. And that verb, turn away, implies that they rejected the gospel and returned to their previous way of life. Peter explains this rejection by employing two proverbs. Though two proverbs are quoted, the Greek uses the singular term peroimia, indicating that both proverbs are making the same point. The first proverb is a quote from Proverbs 26.11, a dog returns to its own vomit. The second proverb states, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Now there's some debate as to the origin of the second proverb. Two sources are provided as its source, Heraclitus or the story of Ahakar. 
Peter's choice, though, of these two proverbs is based on the fact that both dogs and pigs were unclean animals. Exodus 22.31, You shall be holy men to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. 1 Kings 14.11, Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Leviticus 11.7, And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making it a split hoof, it does not chew cud, it is unclean to you. See, dogs were unclean because they scavenged from the dead and ate their vomit. Pigs were unclean because they wallow in the mud. And like dogs, false teachers return to what is repulsive, such as immorality and impurity. And like pigs, false teachers return to the filth from which they have been cleansed. And this is the reason why. Because they return to the immorality and impurity, because they return to their filth, they are appointed to judgment. That is, they are cursed. Peter provides these seven damnable descriptions of false teachers to convince us of the dangers they present. Once an individual apostatizes, he or she will never return to the truth of biblical orthodoxy. False teachers are not always false teachers. They once gave all appearances of being saved. Sadly, while they professed Christ, they never possessed Christ. And though they were baptized and active in the church, they were never genuinely converted. They gave no evidence or fruit. Instead of persevering in the faith, they gradually embraced heresy until they finally rejected biblical orthodoxy and returned to their former lifestyles and pleasures. 1 John 2.19 applies here, friend. They went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they are all not of us. Just because someone appears morally clean and upright does not mean that their inner nature has changed. Consider Judas Iscariot. He was a disciple of Christ and one of the twelve apostles. For three years he traveled and talked with Jesus. All those around him assumed he was genuine. and But in the final analysis, he was disingenuous. Judas denied Christ by betraying him. And as such, he is forever known as a son of perdition. John seventeen twelve. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Peter has devoted much of his epistle to warning us about false teachers. Believer, you need to beware of false teachers. They want to poison you by masquerading as something they are not. You must study this damnable description of false teachers and know they are arrogant, animalistic, atrocious, adulterous, apostate, arid, and accursed. And by knowing this, may it prevent you from being deceived and enticed to sin. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for difficult text, difficult scriptures. Father, it's not enjoyable to listen to this description of false teachers, but it's necessary for us. It's good for us. Because, Father, they're out there. And they want to deceive us. They want to entice us. They want to seduce us into sin. They want to cause us to repudiate orthodoxy. They want us to walk away from the faith. And so, Father, I pray that by looking at these seven damnable descriptions, that, Father, it would give us open eyes, not eyes like Balaam, but open eyes to see the danger that is around us. 
that we might be warned and wise and wary of who is out there and what their goal may be. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a solid foundation, make us a stable in the faith, make us stable in sound doctrine, so that, Father, we'll see and we'll be delivered from their corruption. We pray in your Son's precious name. Amen.